Amen. Praise the Lord for that. And I'm thankful that we're loved by God, aren't you? The, the simplicity uh, of that song is um, what is um, so amazing and true uh, to us, and I'm so thankful for that. Well, we've been in our series on Final Destination. Kiddos, you may be dismissed to your class. Uh, Adrian is heading to the back there. You can follow her. And, uh, but I've enjoyed our, our series on Final Destination, uh, what will take place in your life and in my life uh, when we take that final breath. And uh, God forbid that would happen to any of us anytime soon. Uh, but the reality is, is that some... 2018 might be uh, the year where they uh, where they pass on, and uh, this series is really talking about the two different destinations that there are um, once someone passes on from this life. And uh, we've spent some time uh, in the, uh, the the one destination of heaven, and uh, we're going to continue to do so uh, this morning, and then we will uh, transition soon uh, to uh, the one that is dreaded and the one that is not enjoyable to speak about or to even uh, hear, and uh, that would, of course, be the, uh, the destination of hell. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to tackle a few more, few more questions uh, that you and I might have uh, regarding heaven, and it's funny because uh, this week on, on Monday, we, I, you know, I had a kind of a honey-to-do list. Yeah, any of you have those, you know, honey-to-do lists? And uh, one of those was I had to get the, uh, the oil changed in my wife's, in my wife's van. And uh, so I took, the, I took the kids with me, and we went to the oil change place. And while we were waiting there, and uh, there was Dr. Oz uh, was, on the, was on the TV show, and uh, they had two different doctors that had gone to heaven and back. And uh, they were being... Uh, they, they were being interviewed on what that was like to to go to heaven and back, and it was so um, amazing, creepy. Kind of one was, you know, they were uh, they were welcomed by uh, all of the past people in their lives. It was just like they were kind of at this like uh, beautiful uh, scenery, and um, and it was just uh, they could kind of. They were kind of there, but they were kind of still here on earth. And then the other one was, uh, was a lady that had um, had a canoeing accident. And uh, she, again, they're both, they're both doctors, both scientific in, in nature. And uh, she was kind of there, and it was really dark, and it kind of had like weeds, you know, growing over it. And it was just ugly, and uh, she was being welcomed into heaven. But then also she knew that she was still on the hospital bed as they were trying to revive her and, you know, all different types of things. And, you know, in the end... The, uh, the conclusion was that there, according to Dr. Oz, that there is a heaven and that it might be something like uh, these two uh, doctors' uh, stories. And so I want to ask you again this question, as I asked you last week, what, is, what are your ideas about heaven based on? Are they based on, you know, biblical fact? Are they, are they based on some forms of heresy? Are they based on people's experiences? And what happens when it's based on people's experiences, guess what? You're going to have a lot of different ideas, right? Those ideas are going to kind of be a dime a dozen because everyone's going to experience something different. I often joke about having all kinds of experiences when I have way too much pizza late at night, you know, and I have, you know, I get, you know, I get some funny dreams too. 
that I could tell you about. Maybe they were heaven, maybe they weren't. It was just probably too much pizza, and me being, uh, you know, that just affects me in the wrong way. But what is, what is the fact of your idea of heaven based on? And uh, finding those answers to questions like, what's going to happen there? Are we going to see our loved ones again? Those different types of things. You, you can base it off of, uh, of piecing biblical details together, and you and I can kind of sift out the, the popular myths that are out there, and we can come to, I believe, a biblical description of what, at least what God wants us to know about heaven. And so uh, I just want to review real quick before we kind of get to new questions. Last week we, uh, we talked about the question of what is heaven, uh, just the general question. And uh, the word heaven is mentioned 582 times in the Bible over the course of 550 different verses. And every single time you see the word heaven, it doesn't necessarily refer to the dwelling place of heaven. We talked about how we learned from Scripture, and I won't go through the verses again. You can, you can listen to the, <clears throat> excuse me, the message online or on the app if you'd like to, kind of, if you weren't here last week, you'd like to catch up. But um, Paul was talking about the third heaven, so it indicates that there's multiple different levels. And there's the atmospheric type of heaven, and uh, that's what you and I are living in right now. So we do have heaven on earth, and if you've ever wondered that, it's kind of the, the, the air that you breathe and, and all of that. And then the second heaven uh, would be the stars, the moon, uh, kind of the places where the planets are in. It's the, it's the space, okay? And then the third heaven would be the dwelling place of God and His holy angels and the Christians that have died and have gone on before us. We also looked at the heaven or the question of where is heaven? Where is heaven? And that's a that's a little bit more of a difficult question uh, when you think about how the way that we define a place isn't quite how the Bible defines it. Isn't doesn't have the the the, the dimensions that we're talking that, that we often think of. Okay, you've got uh, you know you've got cities that are coming out of heaven. You've got God who inhabits eternity. Different things that we look at, and so it's not quite the way that you and I would define a place, but that's okay. We talked about last week how we don't have to understand everything, and certainly after today's message, we won't understand everything because it's, not, it's, it's beyond us. We also talked about last week what will heaven be like, and I really want to spend a lot of time on that uh, today, but we talked about how there's no more sin, suffering, and we're going to kind of uh, nail in on some of that today. No, no persecution, no division, no disunity, no hate, nothing like that. And then we spent quite a bit of time on how good do I have to be to go to heaven. Most have the, most have the understanding that, you know what, they can, they can sin and that would keep them out of heaven. But what most don't know is that no matter how good you are, you still can't get to heaven because it requires perfection. And none of us could say, yeah, that's me. Only Jesus Christ was perfect in his righteousness and he took care of the guilt of our sin. And so I want to answer another question for us here this morning. And that would be this. Will believers remember sin, sorrow, or pain in heaven? Are, sin, are believers going to remember sin, sorrow, or pain in heaven? Let's look at Revelation 21. It should be up on the screen. You're just going to have a different kind of message. Just follow along up on the screen. I won't have you turn anywhere. Verse 4, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Some of our dear folks in our church, Elizabeth and Carla, they had a 
family member in El Salvador pass away this week. No more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Verse 5, and he, sh- and he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Heaven, it's going to be so drastically different from this present world that it requires the use of negatives to describe it. To describe what is totally beyond human understanding requires pointing out how it differs from the present world in which you and I live. And so the first change from earthly life in heaven is that believers are, not, are going to experience God wiping away the tears from their eyes. Another passage in Revelation says, Revelation 7, for the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Isaiah 25, verse 8, it says, He will swallow up death in victory, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces. Now, here's what that doesn't mean. That doesn't mean that when you and I enter, enter into heaven that we are going to be crying and weeping because we have to face the record of our sin. That's not why that's going to happen. Why? Because you and I know that that record was abolished. That record, praise God, it was taken away. Why? Because God is good. Because God loves us. And as a believer, that's just who you are. It's not what you've done. It's not anything I've done. It's because of what Christ did. There's no longer, praise God, according to Colossians 3, there's no longer a record in heaven. Everything that was going against your record was completely washed away. And now we're going to get to heaven and we're going to experience Romans 8, 1 to its fullest. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. 1 Peter 2, verse 24, who his own self bear our sins, speaking of Christ, in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye were healed. And so you and I, we don't, we don't enter heaven crying and weeping in fear because we're going to have to give an account for our sins. No, those sins were accounted for on the uh, on, the, on, on the body of Christ. What it declares is the absence of anything to be sorry about. No sadness, no disappointment, no pain. There will be no tears of misfortune. There will be no tears over lost love. Tears of remorse, tears of regrets, tears over the death of loved ones, or tears for any other reason. Hallelujah. There's been a lot of tears in people's lives lately. A lot of, a lot of remorse and a lot of, a lot of sorrow. That will, praise God, not follow you if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior into the place that we know of heaven. Another dramatic difference from this present world is there's going to be no more death. No more funerals to attend. No more scary 911 calls and there's the fear of you don't know if this life is going to end. 
We'll look at Isaiah 25, verse 8 again. He will swallow up death in victory. The greatest curse, curse of the human existence will no longer have its power. There'll be no longer death. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, 454, so when this corruptible shall have put on incorruptible, incorruption, what Paul is saying in the whole context, our bodies, we're corruptible, we're constantly dying. That's discouraging, right? Every day we're walking closer to death. But we're going to, one day, we're going to take off this corruption. We're going to put on incorruptible. And this mortal shall have put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the same that is risen. Death is swallowed up in victory. Satan and death itself in Revelation chapter 20 is going to be cast into the lake of fire. No death. It's different. Negatives in our world are used to describe what heaven will be like. It's so different. No tears. No sorrow. There'll be no death. Nor will there be any mourning. Nor crying in heaven. The grief and the sorrow and distress that produce mourning. And its outward appearance is tears. Its outward appearance is crying. It's not going to exist in heaven. The glorious reality will be the complete fulfillment of what Isaiah prophesied in chapter 53. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. When Christ, when Jesus Christ bore your sin, and he bore my sin on the cross, he also bore the sorrows of that. Because sin is the ultimate cause of sorrow. Sin is what has wrecked this world. Sin is what wrecks every single relationship. Sin is what wrecks everything that you and I enjoy. Sin wrecks that. Sin brings the sorrow. And Jesus bore all that sin. Jesus became that grief. Jesus became that sorrow. Why? So someday, you and I, we would no longer have to experience it. The perfect holiness and the absence of sin that's going to characterize heaven, it will also mean that there's no more pain. Because sin is what brought the pain. On the cross, Jesus continued in this text, verse 5, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace, us wanting peace, was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. While the healing in that text is ultimately a spiritual healing, I believe it also includes a physical healing. Because the glorified, sin-free bodies that believers are going to possess in heaven, they're not going to be subject to pain anymore. Can I get an amen? How many of you want to go right now? Don't worry, I won't kill you. We got some Kool-Aid in the back there that you can drink. That was a joke. Let's, let's take that out of, the, out of the internet thing there. That was a joke. What happened many years ago wasn't a joke, but me saying that was a joke. The reality is, is all the negatives, the broken hearts, the sorrow, the things that bring you to tears, all that's going to be gone. That's what heaven is described like. 
takes your negatives and says, no, that's all washed away in what? Because of Christ. Now you and I, we get to, we get to go to a place of beauty and grandeur. So are you going to have sorrow in heaven? No. Is there going to be any sin in heaven? No. Praise God. No death in heaven. It's all going to be the way that it was originally supposed to be early on before sin came and wrecked everything. Let's take on another question, okay? Another question. Will we recognize and be reunited with our, if I could put this in there, with our saved loved ones in heaven? Will we recognize and be reunited with our with, with, with those that have trusted Christ as their Savior in heaven. It's a question that we think of, huh? And they, they died before us. I think of some in our church. They had an uncle just pass away this week. Am I ever going to see them again? Well, if they're a Christian, let me answer that for you. Yes. Yes. The Old Testament, when a, when a, when a person died, the, the biblical writers said that he was gathered to his people. Genesis 25, verse 8, it talks about Abraham. He gave up the ghost and died in a good old age and an old man and full of years and was gathered to his people. Chapter 35 talks about Isaac. When he died, he was gathered unto his people. Judges 2.10 says, and also all the generation were gathered unto their fathers and there arose another generation after them. 2 Samuel 12, David is referring to an infant child that had died And David confidently says this in verse 23, but now he is dead. Wherefore should I fast? They were coming to him and saying, hey, why don't you fast for him? He's like, he's dead. Can I bring him back again? Question mark. I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. David is saying, there's going to come a day when I'm going to see my, I'm going to see my son again. Now, this was, of course, the result of sin in his life, where he had uh, saw Bathsheba bathing and washing herself on a rooftop. And ultimately, as God said, there was going to be consequences. His baby dies. He's broken over. He said, but I'm going to see that. I'm going to see that baby again. David evidently expected to see this child again, not just some nameless, faceless soul without an identity but his very child. The New Testament indicates even more clearly that our identities will remain unchanged. While Jesus was sharing the Passover meal with the disciples, he said this in Luke 22, and he took the cup and he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. It's as if he's saying, and there's, there's more verses we'll look at. It's as if Jesus is saying, I can't right now, but we will again later. Okay? And where will we do this? The kingdom of God. Okay? Christ was promising that he and his disciples would have that time. Jesus makes a similar, but maybe even a more definite promise in Matthew 8, verse 11. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of what? Heaven. They're going to sit down with Abraham and, and Jacob and Isaac. And then you learn later that Moses and Elijah, they appeared with Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration, even though there had been centuries since their death, or centuries apart, so to speak. Moses had died. Of course, Elijah went up. Uh, in the uh, you know in, in the chariot of fire, but it had been centuries apart. They remained clear in their identity. 
Matthew 17, verse 3, And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias taking with him. Then Peter, then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Jesus, one for Moses. He recognized it. He knew that it was Moses and one for Elias or Elijah. Knew the, the New Testament way of saying that. Peter, James, and John, evidently they recognized them which implies that we somehow are going to be able to recognize people that we've never seen before. All the redeemed, I believe, are going to maintain their identity forever, but it's just going to be in a perfected form. We're going to be able to have fellowship with Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Moses and Joshua and Isaiah and Daniel, Ezekiel. David, Peter, Barnabas, Paul, and anybody else you want to put in there. For that to be possible, we must all retain our individual identities, not turn into some sort of generic being. And so if you're wondered about kind of feeling out of place in heaven, <laughs> I wasn't a Paul. Man, I wasn't a Daniel that was willing to just be courageous for God. If you're worried about what it's going to be like in heaven, don't. Heaven will seem more like home than the dearest spot on this earth. The uniquely, it is uniquely designed by a tender, loving Savior to be a place where we will live together for all of eternity and we will enjoy Him. It's no wonder the psalmist said in Psalm 116, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. Heaven, it's going to be a great place. No sin, no death, no sorrow, no tears, no grief. Reunited with those that have gone on before you in Christ. Bible people. Who do you want to meet first? Have a, have a choosing. But let me ask you a final question here this morning. That's this. Do babies and others incapable of professing faith in Christ automatically go to heaven? This honestly, it's a tough one for me, and it's a tough one for Sarah due to the the many miscarriages that that we have been able to go through. People often wonder about the eternity, the eternal destiny of the unborn, of the aborted, of babies in general, and those that may be mentally retarded type that are unable to intellectually understand the gospel. I'll be honest with you, this question's a difficult one. It's not an easy one. Unfortunately, the Bible offers us no explicit answer. It's not just spelled out there for us. However, based on several passages, as well as an understanding of God's character, who is good and we're loved by Him, his dealings with men and with, with mankind, I think we can develop a good idea of how it works in this type of situation. Back in 2 Samuel 12, often this is quoted by people that say, hey, do, do babies go to heaven if they die when they're just a little baby? Or if, if all of the millions upon millions of babies that have been, have been aborted, do they do they go to heaven? Often this will be the text they go to, but now he is dead. Wherefore shall I fast? 
Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Though this verse does not explicitly say that all babies go to heaven, David clearly does expect one day to be reunited with his departed child. Now, Mike and I, we've been hashing through this this week. I mean, ultimately, this is, this is David's hope. This is David speaking. This isn't God speaking. This is David saying, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see him again, and it, and it helps him through his life. But since we know David is a believer whose destiny was heaven, we can come to a conclusion that his hope of reunion means that he expected his child to be in heaven. 2 Samuel 12 suggests some evidence for a heavenly destiny of unborn and children who die young and those that we'll talk about later who they can't comprehend fully the gospel message. Now, I'll be honest with you. If that was the only verse we had, <laughs> it'd be admittedly, it'd be less than ideal. But I believe there are more scriptural principles that I can help us with uh, here this morning. My heart, has, my heart has gone to many places this week for you all and for you. I know what some of your pasts include, and I want to tell you this morning that I stand here in the best of my ability, and I offer you grace this morning. I offer you hope this morning. First, the Bible clearly teaches that God cares deeply for children. Let's pick it up in Matthew 18. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child unto him, and set him in the midst of them, and said, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as a little child, ye should not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whoso therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And who shall, shall receive one such like child in my name receiveth me. But whoso offend one of these little ones, he goes on and say that's a horrible thing. But listen, Jesus is not saying that you have to become a child to go to heaven. He's using, he's using a picture here. He's using, he's using a type. He's saying, you see these little kids, the way that they completely depend utterly on mom and dad? That's the kind of faith that we have to have. Remember the, remember the first message in this series, the thief on the cross? Man, there was nothing that guy could do. Literally hung to a cross. He couldn't have done a good thing, really, apart from saying something. Nothing he could have done. And yet he depended upon Jesus. Will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus said, this day thou shalt be with me in paradise. And so there's a, there's a dependency here. But babies don't know that they need to depend upon God for salvation yet. They don't fully understand that. And so I'm trying to give us some comfort to these verses. M M Matthew 19. Then were there brought unto him little children, that he should put his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Suffer, little children, and forbid them not to come unto me. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed thence. Those verses do not state that children go to heaven, but they do show God's heart toward children. He created and he cares for children. And beyond that, he always accomplishes his perfect will in every circumstance. The psalmist said in Psalm 86, verse 15, But thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and plenteous 
and mercy and truth. That's who God is. He is the God who became man so that he could carry away the very problem that would keep us from heaven. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's God. He is God made him, Jesus, to be sin for us. So God has a heart of compassion. God is in the rescuing business. God is in the saving business. And God this morning saying to you, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, trust Him. He became sin for you. He took your sin upon you. Now I would say, a child, they can't comprehend that. We often are talking about this with Blake, who's four, getting ready to turn five in March. And some of you might have a salvation testimony of that age. Blake just doesn't quite get it yet. And I don't want to just give him some type of false hope. But God, he cares for children. We can be assured that God will do what is right and loving because he is the standard of what is right. God is the standard of what is loving. God is love, John tells us. Those those considerations alone, in my opinion, and that's all that it is, seem to be evidence enough of God's particular love shown to the unborn, to those who die young and to those who mentally cannot, they're not capable of understanding that they are a sinner and that they need Christ as their Savior. But there's another point that I believe might be helpful in answering this question. While infants and children have neither sensed their personal sin and need for salvation, nor have they placed their faith in Christ, Scripture teaches that condemnation is based on the clear rejection of God's revelation. Jesus said in Luke 10, He that heareth you heareth me, and he that despiseth you despiseth me, and he that despiseth me despiseth him, God, who sent me. There is a rejection a willful understanding of a rejection of God. John 12, 48, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath no one that judgeth him. This is Jesus speaking in both of these texts. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. Can we definitely say that the unborn or the young child or those that have the ability to comprehend can, we, can I stand before you and dogmatically say, I'm not sure, but I'm just trying to give you some evidence. I told you it's a tough question, and it's a question that many, many, many people have asked. And I don't want to just snowball you, but it's these, types of mess, it's these types of verses, it's these types of principles that give hope and comfort to a family like mine that has seen, has experienced several miscarriages, and I know there's been many in this room as well. But God's general, the the, the, the truth has been displayed by God's general revelation. And the Bible says that they're without excuse. Romans 1.18, but I want you to notice this carefully. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen but understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, 
so that they are without excuse. But if you were to look at that entire context, there is a willful rejection. They know the truth. They see it in their in creation. They, they, they experience it in their conscience. Their conscience says, no, this is not right. You were created not for this. You were created in the image of God. And here is what that is supposed to look like. And there's this, this, this angst. And we just suppress that. We say, no, God. I have a hard time believing that a tiny little baby can understand that. I believe a baby is a baby at conception. That's what the Bible says. Are they shaped in iniquity? They are. David says that. Scripture is clear that children and the unborn, they have original sin, 100%, including both the, the propensity to sin as well as the inherent guilt of original sin. But could it be that somehow Christ's atonement did pay for the guilt for these helpless ones throughout all times? I stand before you and I say yes. But I desire for you to come to your own conclusions regarding this matter. And also what I'd like to do now is I would like for us to hear from a far more seasoned pastor than I. I wish I had seen this video before I studied because he, in like three minutes, Mark, he just, simple stuff. I just spent 30 minutes and just really struggled with it. Okay? But let's listen to uh, John MacArthur right now. All men are sinners, and they have no right to go to heaven. And that's universally true. Therefore, if we go to heaven, it's not because we have a right. It's because God is gracious. The best illustration I know of that is God sovereignly, graciously saving infants that die or fetuses that are, are aborted. God in grace saves the little ones that die. And I think the case is made all through the scripture that he does that. In the Old Testament, for example, when uh, pagans, uh, idol worshipers, offered their children to Moloch and set their baby on an on a fire and it was incinerated. The prophet Jeremiah called it the death of the innocents. Mm. God even refers to those sacrificed babies as innocent. That's pretty significant. They are innocent, which means they're not guilty. Yeah. I think another passage that weighs in on this is Mark 10, where Jesus said, permit the little children to come to me and forbid them not for of such is the kingdom of heaven. Pretty hard to dismiss that. And then he did something that he never did for unbelievers. He gathered those little ones into his arms and, and the text says he blessed them. You can't find a place in the Bible where God places blessing on people who aren't part of his kingdom. And that's an act of grace. And it becomes a kind of model for how God even saves adult sinners. It's all by sovereign grace. You know, when you think about the fact that heaven is going to be populated by people from every tongue and tribe and nation, as it says in the book of Revelation, how could that happen? Because the gospel hasn't necessarily in every area era of time gone to every tongue and tribe and nation. But, but high mortality rates in um, non-Christian, third world, and false religion environments produce people for heaven. 
And I think God has been gathering little ones from every tongue and tribe and nation around the world throughout all of human history. Mm. The obvious thing to say to somebody who had an abortion, if you feel guilty about what you did, would you like to see that guilt turned into hope and even joy? Well, how, how could that ever happen? It can happen because you can be rejoined forever with that child in the presence of God. If you, if you understand the sin, you repent of the sin, that sin is completely forgiven, it is forgotten, it is off the books, it is out of the picture for those that are believers. The past is done with if you're in Christ. This, is, this isn't cancel out the rest of your life. When you aborted that baby, uh, although it, it was sinful to do that, it was wrong to do that, that baby went immediately into the presence of the Lord. The worst that you could do brought about the best that could ever happen to that life. Yeah. And as the early church used to say, when an infant died, he passed through the world without ever being touched by sin into the presence of the Lord. So hopefully there's something there that um, said far more eloquently. But the question is, is with this, with this final destination, do you, do you know where your final destination would be? Tried to describe heaven in a way that is just where it, it, it's, it's a beautiful place. We have to look at sometimes even the negatives of heaven, and we've got to, and we've got to see that, 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 that God takes the, the harshness of what you and I experience, and he says, that's not what heaven's going to be like without sin, without sorrow. But you and I, as we looked at last week, the way that you and I enter into heaven is not by us being good. It's not by us kind of having a, you know, kind of a balance of a justice system. Because here's what if you and I, let's just be super transparent, our bad would far outweigh our good. Because sometimes even our good has the wrong motive. And the only way that that even gets canceled out is you trust Christ, his perfect record, his perfect righteousness, and he is the game changer. If you in this room have, have had a loved one go on before you and they're in Christ, you'll see them again if you know Christ. If you've in your past and you have made a decision to take a life, there is grace that is extended there. I love what, uh, what John MacArthur said there, that the worst that we could do unto that baby was the best thing for them. You get to go to heaven. And so I extend that grace to you. I extend the, the hope of heaven. But can I encourage you to make sure you have the confidence in that heaven? It's not enough just to know about it. It's not enough just to be, oh, I, I, I can't wait. You've got to know that you are in Christ, that you've accepted him as your Savior. And so my prayer is that these questions have been a help to you. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I just want to give you an opportunity to just to thank the Lord for heaven. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, I've said this for multiple weeks now in a row. You can know that. You acknowledge your sin before a holy God. And you trust Christ and his death on the cross as a payment for that sin. 
In a moment, I'm going to head to the back. And if the Lord is tugging on your heart, you don't really have the confidence in heaven. You're not really sure whether if you were to take your last breath today. If you weren't sure, oh, don't fight that. Don't fight that uneasiness. Please. Everyone's heads will be bowed for an extra few moments. I'm ahead of the back. I'd love to show you from the Bible how you can have confidence that heaven will be your home. Those of you that are believers, you pray and you ask the Lord to, to give you a gratitude for that future home of yours.